After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Jack. So this evening I want to do some teachings on climate change. Um... And you know how it is as a teacher um, or as a human being, we teach what we need to learn, really. So I'm talking to you, but I'm also trying to understand in myself how to hold this. And it's not that easy. I have a new grandson. His name is Desmond, and he's now, last week he turned six months old, and he rolled over three times on his six-month birthday. (laughs) In India... It's a very special thing. They call it rolling over day when the baby first rolls over. It's a holiday. Thank you. And um, because um, baby Krishna in the mythology, um, that was the day that he first rolled over and then opened his mouth and his mother peered in and there were all the galaxies and stars and she said, oh, this isn't a regular baby I had. Anyway, so rolling over is a big deal. Um, So I'm going to try something different tonight and hopefully it will be helpful to me anyway and maybe to you. Um, Over the course of the last number of months I've been telling some big stories and using the stories as a way to open the mind and the heart to some greater understanding for all of us. One was the story of Sir Gawain from the Arthurian legends and the theme of it was what women want. You'll have to listen to that to see if you can find the answer. One was about the Bodhisattva Bimla Takar. One was a great story from Tolstoy that's used by Thich Nhat Hanh about this empress. Um, and stories are really powerful. Barry Lopa is a wonderful writer about the Arctic and the North especially. One of his books is entitled Sometimes a person needs a story more than food. That there's something about stories that nurture the heart. So let me begin and then have some stories to weave in with this. And it's really a reflection. It's not like something there's a quiz or an exam at the end. Um, If anything, it's just a reminder, a, a meditation to you to sense what you know, what is true for you 
in this um, that has some value. When my teacher Ajahn Chah, um, who was a forest meditation monk and master from Thailand, came to visit, his first visit to the U.S., we picked him up at the airport in Boston. Um, He'd never been here, and then we put him into a big van with a couple of the other monks that came with him to drive him out to our center in central Massachusetts, in Barry in the hills of Massachusetts. And we drove down Memorial Drive and showed him here's MIT and here's the towers of Harvard and so forth, kind of showing him the Boston University sites and things like that. And then we got on the Massachusetts Turnpike and we drove for you know, 20 minutes or so till we got outside the belt of the city or 25 minutes. And then we started to pass not just fields, but woods. And of course, New England has a lot of forests and woods in it, right? And we're driving along and his eyes got bigger and bigger. And he said, what are these woods? What are these forests? We drove a little, he said, pull over, pull over. So we pulled over on the turnpike and he got out and he walked up to the fence at the edge of the turnpike and there were all the pine trees and you know some of the maples and oaks and all the trees that one has in New England and his eyes were wide and he said wow who lives in this forest he was smelling it he's a forest monk you know what does it smell like in this forest what kind of animals do you have bears you know are there lions or mountain lions you know what well, who lives in here with us you know and then he turned to me and he said how far do these forests go? And I said, oh, maybe a thousand miles north up toward the Arctic, 1,500 miles. They go a really long way. He got very excited. Forget Harvard and MIT, you know. Let's go for the real deal. Because if you look in the Buddhist tradition archetypally, the Buddha was born under a tree, he practiced his meditation under a tree. He got enlightened under the Bodhi tree. He taught under the trees for years and lived on them. Um, and then he died under these two beautiful sal trees which burst into flowers as the story goes. You know how those stories are, right? As he was dying. Um, it's, uh, there's this very deep connection with our inner opening, with our own well-being, and the well-being and connection to the natural world around us. And I remember going to visit another great forest master, an Ajahn named Buddhadasa, after I'd been teaching for a few years and saying to him, Ajahn Buddhadasa, students in America, they have a lot of trouble with self-compassion. Not to speak of kindness for the people around them, but it's hard, especially for themselves, um, there's so much self-judgment and criticism or shame or trauma or all these things. Do you have any advice for us? And he said, yes, it's simple. Take them out into the woods and the forests and the great trees and the rivers. Bring them into the natural world and teach them the meditations of loving kindness. And he said, after they've been out there for a while, they'll get better. And it was that simple for him. So when we lived in the forest monastery, as I did for a monk, uh, as a monk, um, it was beautiful because we got to watch and live in the seasons, see the phases of the moon and feel the 
heat of the hot season and the rains of the, you know, monsoon and all the while sweeping the paths with great care and, you know, surrounded by the critters of the forest, uh, the wild birds and um, occasional wild cats and uh, cobras at a couple of the monasteries at night where it was dark. We have these little walking sticks and you'd tap the path to let the snakes know you were coming so that you had, you know, everybody has to use the path, but you kind of want to have a little traffic um, pattern there so you don't step on somebody, right? Um, so this is this is the world, and I didn't know in that much. I mean, my upbringing was quite suburban, and the outdoors to me was like the camping store at the mall, basically, you know. It was pretty pitiful. Um, so this was very moving and wonderful to live in this way and what was clear is that the training of mindfulness was not just mindfulness of our breath or our emotions or the different thoughts that we have to hold in compassion and find a place of equanimity or peace in the middle of all that stuff but the word mindfulness sati and sampajanya is a compound word that means two parts mindful presence and mindful response. It's not just kind of passive, eyes closed, navel gazing, Marin County, whatever, you know. Um, that's a, a kind of very limited understanding. Um, you quiet yourself, you tend the heart, you bring in the quality of compassion, presence. So that's one part of it mindful presence. And then from that, you respond to the world. In Zen, they say there are only two things. You sit and you sweep the garden. And it doesn't matter how big the garden is, the garden of the world. So the monks and nuns, where we lived in these forest monasteries, which were kind of in the wilder parts of the borders of Laos and Thailand and Cambodia, still still pretty wild in those forests, um, they could see from very early on the destruction of the forests because it's been happening for decades now. And it used to be when my teachers were traveling in the forests and jungles, there really were quite a few tigers. And the word for Laos, one of the, one of the um, descriptions of the country of Laos, and we were on the border of Laos and Thailand, was um, the land of Langsan, Langzang which is uh, of a, a million elephants, that the forests were filled with wild elephants and with gating, you know those little cans of Red Bull? A Red Bull is actually a, a wild bull in the forest and they had them. Not so many left, but they had them all. And what the monks and nuns saw is that as moder- modernization came, the forests were being cut down. You know, and the natural world was being decimated in ways. And one of the responses, which is quite famous and you've heard about, is that some of the abbots and the famous monastics would go out into the remaining stands of forest and take their own robes and take them off and put them around the biggest trees, the great old teak trees and the antique trees that were there, and ordain them as abbots of the forest and do all that chanting. And then, because there was such reverence and belief um, 
in the sacredness of the robes and of the monastics, that part of the forest would remain untouched. So they understood they could see this in some way. But now, that was 30 years ago, 40 years ago. I was there starting a long time ago, let us say. Yeah, right. Almost 50 years ago. Um, Yes, 50 years ago. Wow. What a trip it's been. Anyway, so... um, Now, we hear about and we see the effects of climate change. And it's becoming much more of a compelling uh, and important question for us. And the question is, how do we live with this? How do we practice with it? How do we respond to it? You know, out of fear? Heartbreak? Despair? Denial? Anger? What do you do with climate change? One map that may be helpful or one model from the inner world of practice is the Four Noble Truths of the Buddhist teachings. The first of these Noble Truths is the Noble Truth of Suffering. It doesn't say life is suffering. It says life has suffering. Anybody not have that? Raise your hand. You can have your $15 back, right? (laughs) It's how, it doesn't matter how, you know, how successful you are, you're going to have it. You're going to have loss and aging and conflict and difficulty. And if you get more successful, you'll also have more problems. Try it out. You'll see. (laughs) But the first noble truth, which says that this is how it is, um, might also be the first noble truth of of climate change itself. Um, That the level of CO2 in the atmosphere is now higher than it's been in three million years, that every year we're burning so much carbon um, and we're only beginning to feel the impact of that change in the atmosphere. The blanket of CO2 is being also um, joined by enormous releases of methane gas in the Arctic especially, and in the tundra and and so forth. And methane, and they talk about huge methane burps or belches coming out as the permafrost starts to melt or as some of the lakes in the Arctic. Um, Methane is 86 times more volatile in its impact in the environment than carbon dioxide, huge amounts. Um, And in both the Arctic and the Antarctic, um, in the Arctic, there is two-thirds less ice than there was in the 1970s. You know glaciers are disappearing. Um, And billions of tons of methane starting to be released. Um, And the polar ice caps are part of what keep the world cool, not just like the refrigerator with ice, but because they're white, they reflect the sunlight back into space. But as they start to disappear and the sea ice Sometimes now there's 95% less than there had been and everybody's waiting eagerly in the shipping industry and the military to have no ice in the Arctic and now we can do all this exploration and send our ships. But what does that mean for us as a planet? 
Every day, the ex- every day, the extra heat that this carbon dioxide envelope creates, um, absorbed by the Earth, is four hundred thousand times one him um, one Hiroshima um, nuclear bomb. Enormous amounts of heat being absorbed, and then there is um, the sixth great extinction, as you know, that one thousand plants and animal species going extinct every week um, of the biosphere that we're a part of. And each degree of each degree Celsius of climate change also reduces the agricultural output of grains and so forth by 6%. The deserts get more arid. The wild storms and floods happen. Um, shift in ocean currents and um, our children and our grandchildren are the inheritors of this. My f- good friend and colleague here, Wes Nisker, says he's buying beachfront property in Arizona right now to kind of <laughs> deal with this rising sea level. Gotta laugh at something. So this is the first noble truth in climate change. Um, it's the way it is right now for us as human beings. And worthy as the Buddhas that you are, of seeing it clearly. Then the second noble truth is the cause of suffering. And the causes are really straightforward. Greed, hatred, and delusion or ignorance are the main roots of suffering. You may have noticed them in the modern world. You know, greed of the kind of rapacious way that we treat the natural world. Hatred, the arising of hatred and conflict and war and so forth. Racism, all of that stuff falls under hatred and under, it falls under delusion as well. Um, and the big delusion is the delusion of separateness where you actually think you're separate from this where the truth is that every breath you take dusted the tops of Mauna Kea and Mauna Loa as it came across the Pacific and it also dusted the Fukushima nuclear reactor. And that's what you breathe because we're in it together. So this is the second noble truth, that there are causes, and the causes are rooted, yes, in the behavior of corporations or governments or groups of people, but really they're rooted in the human heart, in greed, in hatred, and in the deepest delusion, which is the delusion that we're separate that we can get ours and it's not going to affect anybody else. A kind of denial of this. And then there's a path. Fortunately, suffering isn't the end of the story. It's the beginning of the story. It's causes. And then the third noble truth, there's an end. And the fourth noble truth, a path to the end. And the end means waking up from the trance of separation, from this false sense that we're separate from the rest of it, the small sense of self that's sometimes called the body of fear, where we really believe that somehow we're not part of the life itself, which we came out of. And the path, which is clear seeing, it's called wise understanding, wise intention, then it starts with integrity, seeing the truth, telling the truth, acting with integrity. And then based on that, wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise focus, all these qualities that we learn inwardly 
how to be loving and present for this human life or present for another being with care and respect and love, that kind of dignity that each human being deserves is the same quality that we have to bring to the environment and the earth around us. Now, this asks for our response. Some months ago we had a climate day here when Jerry Brown was part of the host of the San Francisco Climate Action. People from all around the world came. And one of the people that came to Spirit Rock was a woman named Christina Figuera. Um, and I was sitting up here in dialogue with her. She was very cool. She, she's a diplomat from Costa Rica, I believe. Um, and then she was in, uh, transferred to Europe. Uh, and she became the UN representative for climate change from the United Nations. She helped to put on the, the Rio um, climate conference. And she was the key figure in the Paris Climate Accord. And as we were having her dialogue and talking, she said that her work in climate, uh, in tending the climate, had left her with a kind of disabling depression um, and despair as she was doing it. And she didn't know what to do. This was leading up to the Paris meetings. And someone said, you need to go and see Thich Nhat Hans and Master Thich Nhat Hans, who has his place in southern France, in Plum Village. So she went there, she said, feeling a lot of despair. He taught her to meditate, or they taught her to meditate. And they taught her the practices of the great heart of compassion, to feel that you're part of everything. They taught her a practice taught her the practices of empowerment. And she said, it turned my life around. It changed me to realize that I could work with my internal climate and bring a quality of love and compassion to what had been otherwise too much anguish. And I returned to Paris in a different place. And she said, what I learned there, which was also Thich Nhat Hanh's beautiful teachings of interdependence, of how we are connected. I got to Paris and I saw that everybody there was acting from the place of victim and perpetrator. You're doing it to us, you know, or we're, you're blaming us for doing it to you. She said, and we weren't going to get anywhere with victim and perpetrator. And I began to teach them what I'd learned, that it's not victim and perpetrator, but that we're part of a big family and that we're all in it together, she said. And the language that I brought from the Dharma teachings from Thich Nhat Hanh and my understanding changed the climate of the climate, <laughs> of the climate groups, and we were able to get those 186 nations to sign on. So now, I want to show you a very brief three-minute video um, in just a moment. And I guess we can turn the spots off when we do it, but I'll tell you about it. It's from a good friend, Louis Schwartzberg, who's a remarkable filmmaker. And this video, um, when the Paris Climate Accord was signed, um, was then um, a film that was shown, invited by the Vatican, because the Pope 
Pope Francis was very much a supporter of the Climate Accord. So Vatican Square, if you've been there, that in North Square, was filled with people in the evening to celebrate the Climate Accord. And then Louis, with some amazing laser cameras, showed some of the images of his natural work on the building of the Vatican and on the dome as the movie screen. So here's three minutes just to give you a sense of the celebration of what Christina Figuera was able to... Can you turn the... Perfect. See how it looks. Travis asked me to get involved because I've been doing films about pollination and um, pollination is the foundation of life and I think they want to use that as a culmination because it's the little things in life that make the world go round. to world with beauty. And we're going to fertilize the world with love. That's what the bees do. That's what we all need to do. This is heaven on earth. Because when people say, oh my God, it means that, that the flowers make you present. It connects with your soul. And that is transformational. Oh my God. say we're going to pollinate the earth with love? This from Thich Nhat Hanh. He said, the mind and heart is like a piece of land planted with many different kinds of seeds. Seeds of joy, peace, mindfulness, understanding, and love. Seeds of craving, anger, fear, hate, and forgetfulness. These healthy and unhealthy seeds are always there sleeping in the soil of the heart and mind. The quality of your life depends on the seeds you water. If you water a seed of peace in your heart, peace will grow. 
When the seeds of happiness are watered, you will become happy. If the seeds of anger are watered, you'll become angry. The seeds that are watered frequently are those that will grow strong. So this is his invitation. Now a story for you. A Taoist story. I'll read a bit of it and then I'll tell the rest of it. This story was told to me by Li Peng, who's now an old man with a thin gray beard who sweeps the path to the Taoist temple outside the prosperous village of Feng Shirli. The village was not always so prosperous. Indeed, it stood on barren land with only a few of the most rudimentary huts for the four families who eked out a living grazing a few scrawny animals and planting seeds in the dry, bony soil with a prayer for their growth. This desolation is not new to China. Oh, it's a sad story and an old one. You who have a chance to know what is befalling the last forests of our modern times should consider it well, for China was not always bereft of forests. Forests hold the soul of the land, and the greenness of their trees breathes life back into the air that we breathe together. Those among us fortunate enough to have entered a great and beautiful forest even once in our life cannot forget such a memory the spring in our feet, the vibrancy of our breath, the joy of the cells of our body. But now most of the forests of China are dead. They've been dead for 500 or 1,000 years. There are so many of us. We've cut them down to build homes for cooking, for warmth, to clear the land for yet one more field. And the land has become barren and the rivers yellow with the soil that's run off. Even young children know something is wrong, never seeing a great forest or hearing the cry of birds in its treetops and stopping for the noise of unseen animals. They know something is missing. They hear the stories of wolves and bear that lived in the forest of wild pig and mountain tiger. And their hearts too must long for a time when the forests were alive, when human life was more fully alive. But all is not lost. Four. Let me see. Li Peng, who is telling this story, talks about how it is to live in this village, Feng Shirli, and how it's become a beautiful place filled with bamboo forests, streams with clear water, glades, sweet forests. He says at the end of the previous century, there was a Taoist elder, a dragon named Tamyang Bun. Dragon is the name for a, a great master in the Taoist temples. And he, Li Peng, was born himself nearby. Tamyang Bun was built born by the Lo Chi River Bank. And as a young man, almost more than 100 years ago, he was a dutiful student and took the Confucian examinations um, and passed them and became a kind of well-known figure there. He married a lovely young woman and they had the beautiful village ceremony that they'd had for a thousand years. The pigs were offered, people danced. And here was Tam Young Boon, now 
a successful member of the community, um, graced with a child then, named Most Precious Gift. And then the sorrows came. His child got pneumonia and died. His father also died in influenza epidemic. And his wife began to grieve so much that after a time she too lost her life. His mother went into a Taoist nunnery and he didn't know what to do. He couldn't return to his village. His heart was broken, so he left for the mountains. One day, Li Peng, the man telling this story, was walking in the mountains, in these desolate mountains, and he came upon an amazing sight. A whole valley that had young trees in it, shen trees and beautiful aspen, lots of ground squirrels, animals. He wondered about this, and then in the distance he heard this sound, ching, ching, the sound that some human being was making. So he walked through the forest toward that sound, and he saw an old man there who was walking along the hillside that had been lost to cut trees and desolation. And every few steps, with his foot, he would sweep the ground and make a little hole and then drop a seed into it, or a seedling, and walk further on. And he began to watch this man for a while. And he said, can I stay with you? May I share my lunch? And the man said, Tom young said, please come and sit and be with me. And that was the beginning of several visits because he loved the presence. There was this peacefulness and a beauty about this man as if his smile was the sunshine and the purity of his being was like a mountain stream. And he began to share his own story, Tom Young Boon, of how he'd been a fine scholar, but then after the troubles and the death of his child and his wife, he went off to the Taoist temple and he saw the destruction all around him. So he watched Tom Young Boon. And Tom Young Boon said, come and stay with me a little bit and taught him some of the secrets that he was using to replant the forest. He said, come with me and I'll show you the Taoist exercises to keep warm in the cold. I'll teach you the Taoist exercises of nourishing yourself by drawing the cream of heaven down through your body. And Li Peng spent some time with him. And then after this, He left to go back. He was still a young man. And he too began to study in the Confucian way, the Analects and philosophy. But then another war came across China. And he ran away with such upheaval. And strangely, when he returned back to the area of his own village that was near these forests, the villages around there were more prosperous yet. 
little dikes between the rice paddies. The land had become soft, more streams growing. There were now alder trees as well as the shen trees. A great rebellion had swept across China, and yet Tam Yongbun, living high in the mountains, acted as if nothing had happened. Li Pong became drawn to the Taoist temple and formally entered as a postulant and studied the eight forms of unlearning and the microcosmic orbit of moving the energy in the body in the way that the heaven and earth cycle. And he'd occasionally visit Tam Yang Moon. And then there was another rebellion, the Japanese invasion, the destruction of the emperor. And Li Peng was cloistered in the Taoist temple for decades, staying away from the political turmoil. But when he went back toward his home, he found that the valley now had grown wild with Chinese maple and the animals, the civet cats and the red-crested woodpecker and the wild boar had returned to a land that was desolate. And he went up in the forest and wondered, how is this happening? And he heard the same ching-ching sound. And he walked and there was Tom Young Boon still planting the seeds, one seed at a time. But now one whole hillside had grown and now he was moving on to another and another. And he asked if he could come and live with this man, this Taoist sage. And he lived with him for seven years, eating the herbs of the forest, learning how to live in the rhythm of the Tao, how to ordain the oldest trees that there were in the forest. And little by little, as he did so, he began to learn that there was another way to approach the desolation of this earth. Now I get to read you. He lived there and learned the secrets. Tom Young Boo taught him how to care for the forest, how to soften the Shen tree pods for planting, how to create a small orchard for hundreds of new saplings. And wherever the forest was replanted, new hillsides were covered with trees, the streams filled with moisture, and the young forest began to fill with wildlife that could sense, ah, yes, here is a beautiful place to live. Now, Li Peng, living there with the Tam Yang Boon, in the forest as it was growing, it had covered 10,000 rai. He began to realize that his own life as a scholar, his own life as a teacher, didn't mean anything when the land was desolate as it was. And so he asked if he might stay with Tam Yang Boon for longer. He trained with him and learned how to tend the forest. But then he got news that there was difficulty in his own family and he had to go away for some years 
to tend his aged parents, to do what he could back where he was born. But in his heart, he longed to return to the mountains. And after some years, he walked from that temple back up into the hills, and now the forests were great and wild and more. He knew he was on the right trail when he heard the sound ching-ching amazed at how beautiful the Chinese maple had grown and the tracks of the wild animals. And remarkably, Tam Yang Boon was planting the day he came back, now decades after he had met him. Tam Yang Boon said, come stay with me and eat the herbs of the forest and learn how to live in the cycles of the Tao. And he learned from the teachers, the wind, the rocks, the trees. He learned the harmony of life. But then Li Peng fell ill and couldn't remain in the mountains. Even the Tao has its seasons and difficulties. He returned to the monastery and now again 10,000 rye had been planted and reclaimed. And in the villages, goats and pigs squealed under the houses and the dikes Now, between the rice paddies had clear flowing water and the children were already accustomed to a diet of clear, good food and white rice from the paddy. And I tell you this story, says Li Peng, with some sadness because... After Mao's great triumph, there are only a handful of the five million monks and nuns of the Taoist and Buddhist temples that were there. Li Peng remained in the temple, and somehow I, as a young boy, was called there too. My heart went to join him and learn the ways of the Tao. So I lived with him as an old man for the last eight years and heard the stories of Tam Yang Boon and practiced the eight treasures. And several times I've climbed to the forest to look for the immortal dragon, Tam Yong Boon, but there'd been no sign of him. I perhaps thought he had died. But then one day in the far distance, I heard that sound, ching ching, of the immortal mountain way, the dragon. And now I've decided to go into the mountains myself, for it is also my way. And I write you the story So you remember as I leave, Li Peng taught me the secret of soaking the Shen tree pods and shown the fire herbs that warm the body in winter. Sometimes I feel there's not much honor left for the Tao in our temples. And I'm called to these mountains, to the animals that roam there, to the sweetness of the forest valleys. I know there's desolation where you live also, I know that your forests have been lost and that many of your friends do not know who they are. But the earth will not always be desolate and the Tao has its cycle of return. And perhaps one of you who reads this story will know the spirit of the immortals in your heart and go off to the mountains and replant the forests of the earth. And that story is based on a, um, it's based on a 
tale called The Man Who Planted Trees, written by John Giorno. Um, this is a different version of it that I wrote in a Chinese style, and I called John Giorno's wife to ask if that was okay, and she said yes. It would be fine to do this, fine to tell this story. But what was important for me somehow um, in telling it to you, just as I read Thich Nhat Hanh's passage about seeds, is to remind you that wherever we are in this dilemma of climate change, it is not the end of the story. And the seeds that you plant and the possibilities of these seeds are what will renew the earth. As Henry David Thoreau has said, where are you Thoreau? I know you were here. He says, Though I do not believe a plant will spring up where no seed has been, I have great faith in a seed. Convince me you have a seed there, and I'm prepared to expect wonders. So what does this mean for us? How do we respond to this enormous threat to humanity and to the animals and creatures of the earth? And I have this page my daughter gave me. It's in her third grade handwriting. I treasure it. She said, Daddy, I think you could use this in your talks. (laughs) Chief Seattle, what is man, and man here includes women, what is man and woman without the beasts? If all the beasts were gone, men and women would die from great loneliness of spirit, for whatever happens to the beasts also happens to man or to men or women. And you hear it, and it's the same principle as this story. How do we respond to this great threat? Notice in yourself, here you come to meditate and you have your own spiritual inclinations. Notice with mindfulness, what is it touching you? You know, for many of us, it will evoke fight, flight, or freeze. Let's talk in terms of trauma because this is a collective trauma of humanity and the earth. Flight, I'm going to move to New Zealand. I'm going to Ohio, to Idaho. I'm going to get out of here somewhere. You know how that one goes. Far away as if it's really going to help. That's flight. Fight. Fight against it. You know, fight against those people. Um... Or freeze, denial, hopelessness, distraction. There's nothing I can do, you know, as if there really was nothing you could do. Or just the desolation for what was talked about in that Chinese story is the desolation of a materialistic society where we could almost describe much of our society by the absence of the sacred what it means to have a sacred relationship with one another, with this beautiful earth that we live on. In a way, that's why we have Spirit Rock to remind us of this, to have such places as this. But the real question is, 
what is possible for us? Here's Tom Young Boon going through a hundred years planting seeds in forests are coming back and new villages are growing. So Gary Snyder, one of our greatest environmentalists, Pulitzer Prize winning author, the visionary of bioregionalism for 50 years writing about this was asked by our colleague and friend here, Wes Nisker. Gary, you see the oceans rising, species disappearing, um, climate um, getting hotter and hotter, um, you know, all the refugees that are pouring out. What advice do you have for us? And Gary looked back as the great Zen teacher that he is as well as an environmentalist. And he said, don't feel guilty. If you're going to save it, don't save it out of guilt. Don't save it out of anger. Don't save it out of fear. Because those are the very forces that are causing the difficulty. If you're going to save it not as an act of war, save it as an act of love. Save it because you love it. Because that's the only power that has the force to match what we're seeing is difficulty. It's the force that lets mothers lift their cars off their children is the force of love. And then it's not a sacrifice. It's not a sacrifice if your foot is injured or your hand is injured in some way. Oh, that poor foot, I wonder if I should help it. Oh, that poor hand, I wonder if I should take it out of the fire. You know it's part of you. Once, wrote this Tibetan Lama, I was staying with friends in Colorado, and he's a great horseman. I took my favorite horse, Rocky, on a trail ride through the backcountry high mountains. I'd ridden Rocky before, mostly in the arena. He was very intelligent, but he didn't know how to walk a high mountain trail. This was a new situation. I was leading the group, and that also made him a bit nervous. I coaxed him over certain rocks, shifted my weight to indicate to him to go around certain others, but he kept stumbling. We came to a narrow place in the trail. On one side was a steep shale cliff up, and on the other a long drop a thousand feet into a river. Rocky stopped and waited for my direction. We both knew that one wrong move would plummet us into the river below. I guided him toward the gorge, Suddenly shifting my weight toward the high wall of shale, I thought that if he slipped, I could jump off and save myself. The moment I shifted, Rocky stopped cold and craned his head around to look at me. (laughs) He knew exactly what I was doing. I could tell that he was shocked and hurt that I was planning to abandon him. The look in his eye said, You and me together, right? (laughs) I took a breath, shifted myself back into the center of the saddle, and we began to, to walk together. This is the movement that's needed. It's not to separate ourselves from the world, but to quiet the mind and connect with heart, our own heart, and rise to meet with the greatness of heart, the dilemma that we carry. The problem isn't refugees at the border or immigration. You know, a lot of that is climate change. 
is the, you know, the effect of climate change in Central America on the clop crops and the farmers. People are fleeing that. Climate, climate drives the poverty, drives conflict, drives death and loss. And people are fleeing. This is not a small thing. And we have to let ourselves feel it. Each day, writes Gustavo Barahona Lopez, who's a teacher, I open my class with a morning circle. Nineteen seven and eight-year-olds sit in, on a colorful rug, talk about their favorite color, their ideal superpowers, how they feel, or who they'll be when they grow up. At recess, I read about a seven-year-old who died in Border Patrol custody after navigating the New Mexico desert. Her name is Jacqueline Kalmakin. I begin to wonder, did she make walking through the desert a game? Count the number of cacti? Make messages with stone in the sand? I wonder if she went to school. Did she have to leave midway through the year to work picking strawberries like my father? Would she color a picture in desert sunrises? I wonder if she knew where she was going. What was America to her? I wonder if she spoke Quiche or English or Spanish or Mayan. What would she write about? My students are learning math multiplication. I wonder if she knew her times tables. What is 15,000 children times two parents in different detention facilities? What is a number of bottles of water times border patrol boots? Did she know the definition of terror or did she call it fear? This not knowing brings tears. I wonder who she was. I see her now. I wonder who she would have become. And the thing about it is that it's really one person at a time. As William Blake said, if one is to do good, it must be done in the minute particulars. General good is the plea of the hypocrite, the flatterer, and the scoundrel, he said. You actually have to see the people, the animals, the beings involved who are part of your family. So there's another story. We're still working, wending our way through this problem that we all carry, and I know you do, as I do. Once, even longer before Tam Young Boon was born, once, a long time ago, before the Buddha was the Buddha, when he was still practicing to become a Buddha, there are these volumes, the Jataka volumes, of his past lives. Once, years ago, the Buddha was born as a friendly little parrot in the forest. He lived happily and delightedly there. He loved flying through the branches. He made friends with so many other creatures. And his spirit was one, since he was the Buddha to be, of joy and happiness in life, of care for others, of the gift of flight. And one day, the skies over the forest turned dark, and there was a huge storm, a lightning storm. 
And as the storm ended, flashing and roaring, the wind began to howl. And in the days that followed, the atmosphere was turbulent and the lightning struck and crackled. There was a seed of fire that was born in the heart of one of those trees that was struck by lightning. And as the forest dried out, that blaze began to spark a huge fire, a conflagration. We know about this, don't we, here in California? And terrified, as the smoke began to rise, the animals ran wildly in every direction, seeking safety from the burning flames and the acrid smoke. When the little parrot smelled the smoke, he flung himself out bravely into the fury of the fire, crying out, Fire, fire, you must run, you must run. And many of the animals ran to the safety of the river. But many others were trapped and couldn't do so, trapped by the flame and the smoke. So then rather flying to safety himself, the parrot continued circling over the raging fire, seeking some means to help all those that he knew that were on the forest floor. And a desperate idea came to him. Darting down to the river, he soaked his bird body in the water and then flew back into the fire like a raging inferno. And unaware of the flames, he dropped down low to find anyone he knew from that forest. And he would find a squirrel or, or a badger and shake the water from the river that were on his body to give them some moments of cooling. like little jewels of something precious in the fire. And again and again, he would go back to the river, get himself wet, and look for someone who was in danger, some creature, and drop as many drops of water as he could upon them. His lungs ached. He was dizzy from the flames. But he thought, what else can I do but fly? I must do this to help. Remember, this is the Buddha as the parrot. You've got to get the story here. Now, it happens that up in heaven, some of the gods and goddesses who were there in their gorgeous deva-like palaces looked down and saw the forest fire, saw something interesting is happening because their seats become very hot when something really cool is happening down on earth. Okay, something's happening, what is this? And they looked down and they said, look at that little parrot. How completely foolish, trying to put out a raging forest fire with his own little wings. Who ever heard of such a thing? Why, it's absurd. But one of the gods looked closer and found himself somehow strangely moved by the parrot going into the river and coming out and shaking the water on another and found himself so moved that he turned himself into a golden eagle and flew down from heaven to go visit and have a little closer look. The little parrot was nearing the flames again when this huge golden eagle with molten gold appeared at his side and said, Go back, little bird. This is a forest fire. You can't stop this. What can a few drops of water do? But the little parrot, of course, wouldn't listen. He continued to fly doggedly, into the river and back into the flames. Stop, stop, said the great eagle. Save yourself. And the little parrot said, um, 
I don't need a great shining eagle to give me advice, thank you. Um, my mother could have told me that, you know. I just need someone to help. And the great eagle, seeing the parrot flying so steadily through the searing flames, thought with shame about his own privileged life. He could see the carefree gods looking down on the earth as if life was just a game. He could hear their laughters, but he also could hear the cries of the creatures in the forest crying out in fear. And all at once, he no longer wanted to be a god or an eagle or anything. He simply wanted to be brave like that parrot and to help. I will help, he said. And flushed with the feelings that arose in him, he began to weep. Streams of tears poured from his eyes, his eagle eyes. And one of the interesting things that happens is when the gods weep, it turns into rain. And as the great eagle began to weep, the clouds opened in the skies and rain poured down, cooling the fire, (sighs) cooling the entire forest. Deluged with the shimmering tears of the gods, the flames died down and the smoke began to clear. And the little parrot, washed and bright, rocketed in the sky above and laughed. He said, now that's more like it. Thank you (laughs) to the great eagle. Tears dripped from all the burned branches and scorched buds, but the water began to remind them that they could flower again. And all the animals looked at one another in amazement. In the blue sky, they saw a little parrot doing loop-de-loops above the forest as the fire had stopped. Or so it is told in the old ways, this story. Now, why do I tell this story? I think about the California fires. Some of you may have lost homes in Santa Rosa and other places. I tell it because I think that the only thing that really will motivate us to do what we have to do are those tears. That we actually have to let ourselves feel as that golden eagle as the God who came down did. The tears of that seven-year-old walking across the desert. The loss of the animals in the forest. The people who are trudging around the world as millions of refugees. Something has to be touched in us to say it's not enough to be a bystander in this one. It simply is not. And those tears become the tears of your loving care. As Gary Snyder said, if you're going to save it, there's only one way. You save it because you love it. And it's not just about recycling and using fewer shopping bags. It just ain't at that level at this point. So I have a good friend, Paul Hawken, who wrote a book, New York Times bestseller, called Drawdown. How many people know this book? Great, 20 of you. There's another few hundred that we'll know in a moment. What Paul did, and he's a, he's a Marin you know, visionary who's written a lot of other things in a serial entrepreneur and 
different kinds, wrote Blessed Unrest about organizations changing the world. What he did was to get a whole group of climate scientists and environmentalists and economists and so forth together. Let's make a list of the hundred things that are most likely not to stop, but to reverse climate change. And then he crowdsourced that list of a hundred and sent it out to graduate departments and think tanks and people around the world, each group to take one solution and do the economics, what will it cost, practicality, how many gigatons of carbon will it take out of the atmosphere, how long will it take. And after a year, he brought all of that back together and made a list, which is in here in the end, the summary of the solutions that are most effective, not just to stop, but to reverse climate change. First thing is, they're all the things that we already know how to do. It's not something new. Second, all kinds of new understandings came from this. For example, the first technological thing is not wind or solar, solar, although they're in the top 15. The number one technological one is to create or to distribute the small devices that will take the CFCs, the chlorofluorocarbons that are used in every old ice cream maker and air conditioner in Jakarta and Buenos Aires and around the world by the millions, those gases are enormously destructive. And when they're drawn off, when they're retired and neutralized, that would do more for the atmosphere than all the solar and power we can build and, um, and uh, wind power we can build. So there was that kind of information. Then in the top dozen is food waste. Pay attention to this and agricultural practices. Um, synergies. Down there about 65 is methane from cows, whatever it is, cow belches and cow farts, you know, you've heard about it, and how to mitigate it. But the synergies are in 67 is rebuilding kelp forests in the ocean, and I'm part of a company from friends who are doing that. It turns out if you put 5% of kelp into cattle feed, they don't fart. So, it, you know, there are all these things that were learned. But the most important thing is it's not just the technological solutions. The number one solution, if you take two in the top 10 and combine them together, the very number one intervention is the education and empowerment of women and girls worldwide. Yeah. Not just for family planning, but in Nigeria or in, in Kenya, 50% of the economy is done by women and smartphones. And they understand how to live and how to trade and how to grow things and how to educate their children in whole new ways when they are educated. So you can look at this, you can get the book, but even better, you can go to the website, drawdown.com and drawdown.com, because there's all kinds of things that you can do from this. What's the point of all this? The earth wants to renew itself. It doesn't take that much, you know, a little bit of water a few seeds planted here and here and here, and then all of a sudden something happens and the earth knows in some way. It's alive, it's part of you. When the governments tried to suppress the truth of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster, the wind told the story. 
The wind carried the truth across the nations. The wind was a poet, a scientist, and a prophet. The earth wants to work with us to renew itself. And we get to, like Tom Young Boon in that story, we get to plant the seeds. Wangari Matai, who won the Nobel Prize for the green belts in East Africa, 51 million trees planted. She started one tree at a time. She spent some time in prison, like all good Nobel laureates, right? (laughs) It's the way it happens. 51 million trees, one tree at a time. Or you look in Liberia and Lehman Gaboi and Ellen Sirleaf who said, Liberia used to be known for its child soldiers and now it's known for its women. Things can change. We have the possibility of changing this and that's why Drawdown actually has a lot of hope in it. To raise your voices, to vote, to teach people to support, as your practice, because there's some way in which the culture, as it is, the consumer kind of misguided side of capitalism, um, it wants to put you to sleep. It wants business as usual. It wants you to actually feel that you can't do anything, that you can't make a difference. It's a lie. It's untrue. Every one of us makes a difference on this earth and makes a significant difference. And your practice of awareness, of loving awareness and compassion will lead you as you get quiet to reflect and choose a few things. And I don't know what those actions will be. Some of you will be political. Some of you will plant. Some of you will support other organizations. Some of you will do it in education. But when you feel empowered to make a difference, it will not only change the earth as you plant those seeds, but it will also change your heart. Because what else are you going to do in this time? You don't want to die feeling like you didn't do anything. You don't. How you do it matters. Yes, you want to do it. But how you do it also matters. Not out of anger, not out of fear, not out of hatred or aggression. This from Molly Ivins, who's a great commentator and activist. She says, so keep on fighting for freedom and justice and what's good, beloveds. But don't forget to have fun doing it. Be outrageous, rejoice in all the oddities that humanity and freedom can produce. And when you get through celebrating the sheer joy of standing up for what matters, be sure to tell those who come after you how much fun it was. It's really a different spirit. It is. And it's what the earth wants of us as well. One more brief video from my friend Louis Schwartzberg, and I think these videos are available on YouTube.
One day, we will wake up to find that the energy that powers the alarm clock came from the breeze through the trees the night before. And we will go to work that morning riding the rays of the sun. It will light our cities and power our businesses. It will warm our homes and cool our workplaces. It will reduce sources of conflict and fuel our economies. It will connect us all. It won't scar the land or poison the seas. The food we eat will be good for our bodies and good for the planet. And the weather that day won't make us worry for tomorrow. There will be more jobs and less disease. The sea level will stop rising. And species will stop dying. The question is, how do we get to that day from where we are today? All 7.3 billion of us. We start by deciding that beyond our doubts and differences, such a day truly exists. And that is something each of us can do today. We can make today the day we stop thinking that the changes required to get there are impossible and beyond us and start realizing that they are not only possible, but what the future requires of us. We must stop turning from the warnings of science and fear and denial and instead turn toward the solutions and partnerships we need. We can make today the day we stop pointing at each other in blame and instead chart a new course together. We have never faced a crisis this big, but we have never had a better opportunity to solve it. We have everything we need to wake up to a different kind of world. We need our leaders to be brave and their choices to be bold. They will either remember us as the generation that destroyed its home or the one that finally came to respect it. We have every reason in the world to act. We can't wait until tomorrow. This is our only home. You can choose today to make a world of difference. Thank you, Morgan Freeman. <laughs> Thank you all for coming and going on this ride, this adventure, as I try to deal with this. And I think as we all do together. I end with a few words and a little bit of 
a poem from Dina Metzger, an activist and friend. She writes, Give me everything mangled and bruised, and I will make a light of it to make you weep, and we will have rain, and we will begin again. There is in this world of trouble and difficulty, the first noble truth, and of its causes of fear and separation, there is another possibility. We know it in our hearts. We know it in our relationships with those that we are closest to. We know it in our home of this earth. There's a possibility of love and compassion. And we can be emboldened and courageous with it. It doesn't take a lot. Thomas Jefferson said, one person with courage is a majority. And you look at Greta Thunberg, you know, and you see this one, you know, young teenage girl stand up in front of the British Parliament, and it's very clear who has the power. You know, we have that in ourselves. So maybe if you weep some of the tears like that parrot, you know, Maybe that's needed for us. Um, But it's also needed somehow to go to the river and get the water and come back and plant the seeds. Um, And to carry this as part of your spiritual practice. You sit and you sweep the garden and it doesn't matter how big the garden is. Thank you. Thank you so much. (laughs) 